Welcome to this episode of the Australian Navy History Podcast Series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Robert Glocklin, former Naval Officer and Director of the Australian Centre for the Study of Armed Conflict and Society at the University of New South Wales campus at the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra. This series is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales and is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. In this, the first of two episodes, we will discuss the maritime aspects of the Royal Australian Navy's greatest peacetime tragedy, the collision between the aircraft carrier HMAS Melbourne and the destroyer HMAS Voyager. The second episode will focus on the legal aftermath of the collision. This accident occurred on the night of the 10th of February 1964 off Jarvis Bay, south of Sydney. Of the 314 personnel on board Voyager, 82 died, while the lives of many more were changed forever. The collision resulted in two Royal Commissions, the first and only incident in Australian history to do so, and had a profound effect upon the Navy and the nation. To discuss this tragedy, I'm joined by a distinguished panel. They are Her Honour Judge Sylvia Emmett. She's on the bench of the Federal Circuit Court and is also a Naval lawyer. Judge Emmett is the daughter of the late Sir Lawrence Street, former Chief Justice of New South Wales and also a Naval lawyer. Sir Lawrence was a participant in the legal proceedings following the collision. Professor Tom Frame, the Director of the Public Leadership Research Group at the Howard Library at UNSW Canberra. He is the author of Where Fate Calls, the most comprehensive account of the Melbourne Voyager collision. Commodore Brian Robertson, whose father, Captain John Robertson, was the commanding officer of HMAS Melbourne at the time of the collision. Brian Robertson commanded five warships, including the Sydney, the Hobart and the Perth, and like his father, served as the Navy's senior captain at sea. Lieutenant Commander Doug Moore, who was a very experienced mine clearance diver and was a member of the ship's company of HMAS Voyager. He would later be awarded the George Medal for Bravery in helping save some of his shipmates. And finally, Vice Admiral Peter Jones, who retired after a 40-year career in the Navy and is now a member of the Naval Studies Group. His first contact with the Navy was as a six-year-old with a visit on board the Voyager, of which he has quite a vivid memory. As a young officer, he served on board the, H the aircraft carrier HMAS Melbourne and went on to command its namesake, the frigate HMAS Melbourne. Thank you all for joining me. Perhaps we should first off describe both ships. Brian Robertson, could you describe the Melbourne for us? Yes, well, HMAS Melbourne, um, she was built at the end of World War II in the UK. Uh, she was called a light aircraft carrier, but she was big for the RAN at 20,000 tonnes. She was over 200 metres in length. Uh, she had a crew of about 1,000 men, which swelled to over 1,300 when the air group was embarked. She was modern in her day and um, was one of the first aircraft carriers with an angle flight deck. She was built by the RAN in 1947 modified and then commissioned in 1955. She gave the Navy its Navy its airstrike power and was a vital part of the fleet's defences against incoming air threats and submarine attack. She carried three squadrons of aircraft, six-wing aircraft, the Sea Venoms, six-wing surveillance and ASW aircraft, the Gannett, and a few uh, general-purpose helicopters. In addition to being a, a mighty ship, Melbourne was also the flagship of the uh, Australian fleet, the seagoing headquarters of the fleet commander. Um, the Melbourne's captain, as a result, was the most senior captain at sea in the RAN, and he had a command team and staff to match. Um, pretty much experience and professionalism was, professionalism was their trademark. There was always a, <clears throat> me, a fuss around the flagship. Other ships had to be on their toes. In harbour, ships had to look smart, and the correct marks of respect had to be paid. Road betide the officer who failed to identify and pipe the Admiral's barge. At sea, the ships were always under the watchful eye of the flagship. Manoeuvres had to be carried out efficiently, professionally, and in a seamanlike manner. Captains of other ships were angry if their ships were found to be wanting by the flagship. For the purposes of our discussion today, it's worth noting that Melbourne was six times heavier than Voyager, 
And while Voyager was a very powerful and manoeuvrable destroyer, it took Melbourne something like 1 minute 30 seconds to stop using full speed astern. Doug Moore, you served in the Voyager. Can you describe her for us? Well, it was a, it was a destroyer. Mm. Um, it, it was a, um, a gunnery destroyer. Everything was centred around the gunnery system. And I joined it in, um, in Williamstown Dockyard just prior to it start sailing for workup for, um, for, uh, and where, when the incident happened. But it was, uh, I'd been in many other ships. I'd been in Melbourne for three years. I'd been in other ships. And uh, it was my first destroyer. And, um, yeah, it was in refit at the time that I joined, and it was a mess. And the biggest problem that we had, that to my knowledge at that time, considering that I was a petty officer, I was nothing, I wasn't an officer, um, was the, we were having a new gunnery system fitted, uh, Fly Plan 5, and A, we were having trouble with the dockyard, as I understand, fitting that and getting it working, and then when we sailed, we still had trouble with that for the whole period up until the accident. Um, the ship, it was, it was a general destroyer-type ship. It um, was quick as quick. It was um, rough as rough. Um, the accommodation was better than what we, I'd had on other ships, but um, it was still basically um, just a, an improvement on a, war type, a World War II-type ship. Brian Robinson, your father had been in command of Melbourne for just one month prior to the, con to the collision. Can you tell us something of his career up until that time? Yes, um, he had a very successful career and in many ways it was overshadowed by those tragic events on the 10th of February, 64. Uh, he joined the Navy in 1930 as a 13-year-old and graduated a few years later. Um, he got the Otto Albert Prize for Seamanship Prizes for Physics chemistry and mathematics and the Governor-General's Cup for Best All-Round Sportsman. As a junior officer, he had a typical career. Um, he specialised in signals in the UK. Um, he loved sailing, he played rugby and he took part in the City of Hobart Yacht Race many times. In World War II, uh, he served in HMS Malcolm, which was a British destroyer and it had a very busy career along the Dutch and Belgian coasts as well as undertaking uh, convoy work. His shop, ship was uh, bombed heavily during the evacuation of Dunkirk. The ship did eight trips to evacuate thousands of men. And during this period, he was awarded two mentions in dispatches and the Distinguished Service Cross for outstanding wholehearted devotion to duty. After that, he served in HMAS Napier in the Mediterranean where they took part in the evacuation of Crete and also uh, the relief runs to Tobruk and the Malta convoys. So pretty busy there. And then towards the end of the war, he was posted back to the Pacific um, and he served as a flag lieutenant aboard HMAS Australia where they were attacked uh, by kamikazes. Uh, during this, he was assessed for being cool and calm under fire and was awarded his third mention in dispatches. At the end of the war, he found himself in Tokyo Bay um, for the uh, VP Day completion ceremonies. Um, his post-war career flourished with jobs in Navy office and Fleet Command. He had, uh, in all four warship commands, HMS Swan, HMS Queenborough, where he was the um, captain in charge of the frigate squadron. Uh, then he was the commanding officer of HMS Vendetta, which uh, is the same class as Voyager. In Vendetta, he was the, the captain of destroyers in charge of the 9th Destroyer Squadron. Um, and I think it's worth highlighting that uh, the commander-in-chief of the Far East Squadron, where he served uh, for quite some time, assessed him, uh, and I quote, a first-class officer and the best all-round all RAM captain in the past 18 months against some very stiff competition. So by the time he joined Melbourne in 1964, I think uh, we can say without fear of contradiction that he was a very experienced 
and professional commanding officer and seaman, and many believed he was destined for the very top of the Navy. Well, Tom Frame, the Voyager's commanding officer, was Duncan Stevens. What can you tell us about him? Well, Duncan Stevens joined just after the Great Depression, and in many ways he uh, was a workmanlike, competent officer who hadn't excelled in the same way that John Robertson had, but was thought to be a reliable, uh, thorough uh, and uh, able junior officer, then middle-ranking officer. He also had a number of ship commands. By the time that uh, he took command of Voyager, uh, he was considered someone who was probably getting towards the zenith of his career. He didn't seem as well suited to staff work as he had been for operational jobs. So I would probably say it was unlikely that he'd get flag rank. I mean, he might have done, but he wasn't on that trajectory, you might say, whereas John Robertson mm -hmm. almost certainly, and I think Brian is right, that would have been flag rank and perhaps been a contender to be the chief of naval staff. Um, Duncan wasn't so regarded. Um, he, I think over the years, had developed a reputation as being a, uh, a, a, someone who worked hard and played hard. And so later it became of some significance that he did have a reputation for unwise drinking while ashore. But certainly prior to his appointment to Voyager, there was no suggestion that he was reckless, dangerous, or ought not to have been command in a destroyer. Now, whether he really wanted to go back and command at sea again uh, is a moot point. I mean, his son told me that, you know, Dad was always happy to be at sea and being at command at sea. But in many ways, this wasn't a great leap forward in his career. It was yet another seagoing command. But the prospect held that if Voyager were deployed to Southeast Asia, there would be operational service, which he hadn't seen, of course, for a number of years. And so it had appeal from that point of view. He was also well connected in as much as his father, Major General Sir Jack Stevens, was a senior public servant in Canberra who was well connected in government circles and highly regarded. And so Duncan was, uh, I think, when, when you know, taken uh, as a general observation, uh, someone who, John Robertson at least, when he looked at Voyager and its captain was entitled to believe that he had another professional officer in a ship uh, at sea with him at the same time and that he wouldn't make any compensation either for a lack of expertise or experience. Mm -hmm. Well, Doug Moore, you twice served under Duncan Stevens. What are your recollections of him? Well, uh, I first served with him when I was an able seaman on, uh, on uh, HMAS Melbourne itself. Uh, he was the commander and I was um, working as a seaman and uh, in the bosun's party which was basically directly under him and uh, him and the mate of the upper deck. Um, I had nothing but uh, like for the man. The man was, uh, he was a man. Um, I, he, I never had any personal contact with him. Uh, we worked on the thing as I called him, sir, he called me more. And um, uh, he wouldn't have ever given me any direct orders. They would have all come through a petty officer or a leading seaman. But uh, I found him to be very good. When I joined Voyager, I joined Voyager as a um, as a uh, upper as a um, officer candidate. I was a, by that time I was a petty officer, and uh, I went there for sea training prior to the um, selection board before going to England for my officers' course. Now, when I joined, um, he met me as. Uh, an old comrade um, and he did vow to me he said I will you can do anything in this ship and we will get you through where you want to go now uh, to that extent I was keeping watches with the midshipman on the uh, bridge of the ship uh, in the midshipman's watch there were just too many of us the ship was the the whole ship at that stage was a, re, a, a training ship um, and um, trying to be a, an operational ship and this created terrible problems which were just part of the whole thing that Voyager just was not ready. When I joined it in the dockyard at Williamstown, it was a mess. 
And when we sailed, just to give you an idea of how not ready we were, we couldn't shut the we couldn't shut the um, escape hatch uh, covers in the ship because somebody, some docky or somebody else, had ran around and sold them for scrap metal. So we were actually accommodated in Queenborough, another ship alongside, uh, which was basically a destroyer, but it was a frigate. But it doesn't matter. But which, that's where we were associated. We were uh, living, trying to get Voyager up and out of the dockyard, and we couldn't sail on our first day at the time of sailing because we couldn't shut the escape hatches because somebody had stolen all of the the escape the uh, the the brass fittings to screw that into position. Now, that gives you a bit of an idea of how Voyager was not ready. And I don't know what the, the naval staff were doing, but to have a, a training ship, a, a, a fleet operational ship as a training ship, is not, in my opinion, good, good management. Somewhere along the line, somebody at the higher echelon had made a mistake. We had lost our training ship, and then we, they decided they'd train people in, in their fleet units, and instead of training them in small batches, they sent us a full, almost a third of our, our crew had only been in the Navy for less than six months. Well, Peter Jones, we've now met the two ships and we've met the two commanding officers. Can you tell us what the ships were doing off Jarvis Bay on the night of the 10th of February? Yes, so as Doug's indicated, uh, Voyager um, had been in refit um, and she was destined, uh, as Tom said, to go on a Southeast Asian deployment. Uh, Melbourne had also been in dockyard hands. Um, so both ships sailed from Sydney on Thursday the 6th of February um, for training um, off Jarvis Bay in what's called the East Australian Exercise Area. Um, and this area is um, a, a, an area of uh, sea uh, emanating, going out from Jarvis Bay, where ships and aircraft of the fleet would conduct a range of exercises. Uh, ships typically would do that either individually for a particular training event or join up together in multiple ships, depending on what the particular exercise is for those couple of hours. Um, but ships would go out for the, typically for a week and they'd have uh, a range of exercises all planned before they set sail. Um, both ships spent part of the, the weekend um, at anchor in Jarvis Bay. Um, and in fact, they played each other in a variety of sports at the Naval College there. Um, on Monday the 10th, uh, they sailed uh, for the, the, the next week's um, exercises. Um, and on that Monday, they conducted um, seamanship, gunnery, anti-submarine training. Um, and that evening, the training was to involve night flying. And this was uh, the first time either ship had been involved in close manoeuvring with another ship for over six months. Um, by way of background, um, an aircraft carrier, when they conduct flying operations, typically has uh, a helicopter um, astern in case there's a ditched aircraft uh, to pick up the air crew. At night, they have either a destroyer or a frigate in that role um, astern and just slightly to port on the port quarter of the aircraft carrier to fulfill that same role. And so this duty of plane guard or rescue destroyer um, uh, was going to be assigned to Voyager to undertake that role for Melbourne's night flying for the, during the week. So perhaps, of course, the most difficult controversial question is how did the collision occur? I'll start, uh, Peter, with you to provide some answers, and then I'll go to the other members of the panel to see if they would like to add anything. So, Peter. Okay, so on that evening, so um, at dusk, um, uh, Voyager was uh, stationed five miles ahead of Melbourne, um, and as indicated that evening, Melbourne was going to conduct its first night flying uh, since its period in dock. Um, and indeed, its aircraft were uh, actually still based at uh, the uh, Naval Air Station uh, HMAS Albatross near Nara, and they would fly out as required to conduct the flying. First aircraft were some Gannett anti-submarine aircraft. They were expected between 2000 and 2030 that evening. Um, conditions, sea was smooth, low swell, clear visibility. The wind was uh, 17 to 19 knots um, and the ships were darkened with only their navigation lights 
Um, also, the, um, uh, the Melbourne would turn on its flight deck lighting um, at different times uh, to help facilitate the flying operations. Um, so both ships were steaming north, and so therefore Voyager was further to the north of the Melbourne uh, initially. Voyager was then ordered to close Melbourne, and she took position um, ahead of the carrier. Um, Melbourne then signalled that the flying course and speed uh, was to be uh, 180 or due south at 20 knots, and ordered uh, Voyager to take plane guard station, which was uh, 1,000, 1,500 yards um, astern and slightly offset 20 degrees off on the port quarter of Melbourne. Um, this position of um, uh, plane guard keeps the, the, uh, the escort clear of the flight path of aircraft uh, recovering, um, but it's close enough so that they can uh, quickly react if, in the case of a, a ditched aircraft, either in the launch or the recovery sort of phase. So Melbourne ordered course to the south, so, so Voyager just slotted in astern neatly into plane guard. Um, the maneuvering into plane guard station and maintaining position uh, in both ships involves the captain, the navigator, the officer watch, the chief yeoman of signals in the, in the carrier. While that's happening when um, the, the uh, escort is going into plane guard station, everyone's very vigilant to watch all, all happens according to uh, expectation. In the destroyer, it's um, when you're going into plane guard and in plane guard, that's one of the most demanding evolutions you'll do um, as a bridge team. Um, so that night, the, the gannets came and went, um, and the next aircraft were sea venom fighters uh, requiring a high relative wind across the deck. Flying course was ordered 10 degrees to 190. Um, Voyager adjusted her position to remain on that port quarter. Um, and as the wind became more variable, um, Melbourne just delayed uh, or took a pause in the flying program um, and then ordered, ordered the ships to go from 190 round to starboard to the northeast uh, to a new heading of 020. Um, now, it's hard not to get too technical here, but, um, but the important point is that when um, Melbourne ordered a turn, um, the turn order meant that uh, Voyager had to maintain its true bearing uh, to Melbourne. So Melbourne had to bear 290 degrees from Voyager. In relative terms, this meant that on completion of the term, Voyager would go from being on the port quarter of Melbourne to being fine on the starboard bow. Um, once on the new course, it was found that the relative wind was still not right, and, and this can quite often happen in, in light variable winds. Um, and Melbourne was then, then ordered another turn to starboard to 060 degrees. And this put Voyager 40 degrees on the port bow. Melbourne um, uh, found that this course wasn't uh, suitable and then went, tried, to go and, um, tried again on 020. Um, and this then placed Voyager back on uh, Melbourne's starboard bow. Now these maneuvers uh, would not have been difficult for a worked up destroyer, they, they may have been uh, challenging for, for Voyager at her stage of, of training. Now, signals, um, probably another bit of information, signals ordering changes of station, etc., are transmitted at night by voice or flashing light, and in this, uh, in this case, they used uh, voice uh, communications for the orders. So, um, so at 2052, um, flying course was now set at 020 degrees, and speed of 22 knots. Um, Voyager was then ordered to resume her plane guard station on the port quarter of, of uh, Melbourne. So on execution of the order, initially uh, Voyager was seen to order course to starboard. And in Melbourne, um, it was expected that Voyager would in fact come to starboard, to uh, a big starboard turn, and then come astern of Melbourne and then come up onto the port quarter to, to take the plane guard. Um, it's reported, uh, and we, we don't have a complete picture because not everyone survived on the bridge of uh, Voyager, um, but it's reported at the time that uh, Captain Stevens in Voyager had been looking at the chart when the, these orders were given. Um, so he would have taken a moment for his eyes just to adjust um, uh, and come out into, into the night again. 
to properly adjust his night vision. Um, the chart table and the radar uh, were sighted just in front of the uh, pleurus or compass position um, in a little sort of shelter. Um, so um, what we do know is that there were different views between the captain and navigator as to the best approach to take station. Um, this dif difference may have been influenced by a different interpretation of Melbourne's aspect. Um, carriers can be uh, a little bit confusing to, to look at at night uh, when you look at the lights. Um, or it may have been some different interpretation about what the, the new flying course was. Um, Voyager was then seen to order course to port um, and then towards the oncoming Melbourne. Um, now, one theory is that this alteration was consistent with another approach to take station, which is namely what's called a fishtail manoeuvre, where you'll order course to starboard um, and then you come back to port. And the idea of a fishtail is to wash the speed off your ship and then allow Melbourne to then come ahead and then slot in astern. Um, and another theory is that there was a change of mind in Voyager maybe between the captain and the navigator or the officer watch about um, what the new flying course actually was and therefore what the manoeuvre was required to take. Um, if Forger incorrectly thought the new flying course was back to the southwest, an alteration of course to the port uh, may have made sense. Um, we will never know. Um, in any case, Melbourne's captain um, was on the starboard bridge wing of uh, the, the Melbourne's bridge um, and a navigator was centrally located on the bridge but both quickly detected that Voyager's turn to port risked a collusion. Melbourne's navigating officer ordered the carrier's engines to be put half astern. Um, Captain Robinson came in from the starboard bridge wing um, and then ordered full astern a few seconds later. Um, at the same time, Captain Stevens, it's known in Voyager, now realising the situation, uh, gave the order for full ahead, both engines and hard to starboard with a view, presumably, to avoid collusion. Um, and uh, before instructing the destroyer's quartermaster to announce that a collusion was imminent. Both ships' measures were too late, um, and at about 50 seconds from impact, the ships were less than 600 yards apart, and because of their momentum, were, um, were unable to alter their course and speed enough to avoid collusion. And Melbourne struck Voyager just after the bridge sliced the, the destroyer in two. So, Tom, you've also researched the collision extensively. Thoughts? We need to see it in two parts. I suppose from Melbourne's point of view, Melbourne's responsibility was to find the wind, operate aircraft, and it had a reasonable expectation that Voyager would keep out of the way. That was Voyager's responsibility, to keep out of the way, not to endanger herself, so that Melbourne can concentrate on flying operations. So the signals that were given were not imprudent. Now, we might come in a moment to whether they were misheard, but they weren't imprudent, they were not complicated in the overall scheme of things. And certainly Melbourne was entitled to believe that Voyager would keep out of the way so she could do what she needed to do, which was find the wind. And as Peter has said, at the point of what was called extremis, in other words, where a collision was unavoidable, uh, then they all took whatever avoiding action, the best avoiding action, I think, that was available at that time. Now in Voyager, what is significant, I think, is that there was some tension in the relationships between those who are on the bridge. We can come to those later, but the point that I would make is that Voyager must have thought, this is my interpretation, looking at the evidence, Voyager must have thought that Melbourne was going to do other than she did because it, there is no good reason for a destroyer to turn directly into the path of an aircraft carrier. She must have thought she was going in another direction. I think three things are important. The first one is that the officer of the watch observes Melbourne and at the point of extremis, when a collision was unavoidable, he drops the binoculars and seems to stare. In other words, somehow what he thought he was seeing is not what he's seeing, and there's a problem. We have a bridge lookout who screams out, bridge. In other words, it doesn't look right to him either. Duncan Stevens and the navigator had been conferring in the chart table, possibly over the interpretation of signals. They come to the bridge, look at things and realize we then have a problem. After the collision occurs, one notable bit of evidence is that someone is heard to scream from the water when, when they've been thrown there by virtue of the collision. Melbourne didn't turn, Melbourne didn't turn. So this voice is heard by a couple of people. Now, we, as Peter said, will not know what Voyager thought or what the command team thought. We can only work on what they did and these little fragments of evidence, which suggest to me 
that Melbourne thought that Voyager, rather Voyager thought that Melbourne was turning back around to the south and that the ship didn't turn and that they found themselves in a position where a collision was inevitable, quite some distance from when it did occur in some time. But as Peter said, the momentum carried them together. Now, it was the worst possible outcome. Voyager was hit amidships between the funnels at 90 degrees. The forward section basically rolls over within a few minutes. Most of the men who are killed are in the forward section. The after section remains afloat until 14 minutes past midnight. Uh, initially, Captain Robertson doesn't think that there's been the collision with the consequences that it was. His first signal was um, Voyager, Voyager's bow's been detached. Well, there was no, no Voyager visible forward of the funnels because uh, Melbourne took, did some time to stop. But we need just to look at the, the two responsibilities on that night. Melbourne uh, acted perfectly consistent with what was expected of her. It's Voyager that's the problem and this continuous turn to port which throws her under Melbourne's bow and that's the point I suppose we need to discuss uh, in this podcast. So Brian, would you like to add anything? Yeah, I, I would actually. Um, as, as Tom says, there's very little evidence to go on because of all the officers were killed and those who survived could only tell what they themselves had seen and heard. But there's sufficient evidence to enable us to say with some certainty how the errors occurred. Uh, from the evidence of those on the bridge, uh, in the wheelhouse, in the engine room, and from one man who was actually working in the steering compartment down aft, we can establish what orders were given and the approximate times at which they were given. So let, let me pick up the scenario at the moment that the signal is executed for the turn to port 020 and at the same time for Voyager to take up station astern of Melbourne. And I want to emphasise that at this stage, the command team in Melbourne was watching Voyager like a hawk. And as Tom said, my father had the right to expect that Voyager's command team was also alert and acting professionally. We know from evidence that this was not the case. So at this time, my father went out onto the Melbourne starboard wing to watch Voyager. My father saw Voyager alter course to starboard to the extent that he could see her starboard side. Now, let me read my father's words. She initially reacted in the correct manner and turned away to starboard, then ceased that turn and turned back to port. At this stage, looking from the Voyager towards Melbourne, Melbourne is almost dead astern of Voyager. The construction of the Voyager's bridge is such that when keeping station ahead of a ship on a dark night like that, it is necessary for an officer to go to the back of the bridge to take a bearing on the gyro repeater to make certain that she is properly in station. You cannot in a case like this rely on eyesight alone. We know from the evidence of the port lookout who survived that no one went to the back of the bridge to take such a bearing. We know from the evidence of another survivor from the bridge that my signals to the Voyager were correctly received and correctly interpreted. The Voyager's initial reaction to my signal was the correct one, to turn to starboard and come around astern of Melbourne. Then she changed her mind and turned to port. There is only one man on the bridge who can make such a decision, namely the captain. There is only one reason in the situation which could cause such a wrong decision. That is, they must have thought that they were on the port bow and cleared a turn to, talk, turn to port and come astern. It is quite inconceivable that they would deliberately turn across Melbourne's bows. And so it is reasonably clear that they must have been mistaken about their position relative to Melbourne and that this mistake occurred because they did not take the proper precautions to see that they knew where they were. In fact, they relied on insufficient data on a dark night in a situation where it is possible to be mistaken unless the proper checks are made. We know from the evidence of another survivor from the bridge that the captain never left his chair. Another factor which may have some bearing on it was Melbourne was burning an extra red light that night associated with some red floodlighting we were experimenting with. This 
red light may have been a contributing factor in the error which Voyager made, because if they thought the red light was the port side light, which only shows on the port side of Melbourne, it would have confirmed to the casual observer that Voyager was in fact clear on Melbourne's port bow. However, the negligence was compounded in that the fatal errors made on Voyager's bridge were not realised until about 20 to 30 seconds before the collision occurred. Thus were further errors of neglect, neglect to keep a proper watch and to take the proper bearings to check the ship's movements. Otherwise, they would have been in a position to rectify the original mistake rather than failing to realise it until it was too late. Now, my father was also interested in the evidence, and we mentioned just briefly there, of the port lookout, ordinary seaman Sumter, the port lookout in Voyager. And what he had to say was uh, very, very instructive. Again, I've drawn on my father's words. So Sumter was the port lookout in Voyager, and he survived. He saw Melbourne, and uh, this would have been shortly after Voyager's alter alteration to port, and must have called the bridge about one and a half minutes before the collision. Sometime after that, he looked around and saw the officer watch looking at Melbourne through the binoculars. Sumter just carried on watching for a moment because he did not know whether he, the officer watch, had heard or not. The fact that the officer watch used binoculars for some appreciable time indicates that he knew that his own ship was altering course to port. He was not surprised to find Melbourne on that bearing. The view he had of Melbourne at that time was similar to the view he would expect to have if he had been turning away from Melbourne on Melbourne's port bow. Now, if the officer watching Melbourne had seen, uh, sorry, in Voyager, had seen Melbourne on an unexpected bearing, he could be expected to react immediately and not to stare at her through binoculars for an appreciable time. The staring indicates an endeavour to assess Melbourne's heading. Not surprised at seeing her in that direction. Sumter, that's the port lookout, says the officer watch dropped his binoculars and it ordered full speed ahead when Melbourne's relative bearing was red 75 or red 80. But we know from other evidence confirmed by my reconstructions that Voyager did not order hard to start of wheel and full ahead both engines till about 20 seconds before the conclusion, the collision. Therefore, I conclude that the moment described by Sumter is the moment of realisation on Voyager's bridge. This must have been about three quarters of a minute before the collision. Now, now this is Brian Robinson talking now. Um, I want to speculate just very briefly. I think the officer of the watch, Lieutenant Price, was correct. I think he knew uh, Voyager was on Melbourne's starboard bow, and I think he altered course to starboard. I think he was overruled by the CO, who had lost the tactical picture, who put on port wheel. As a result of this, the officer of the watch went to the port wing to verify his belief. Unfortunately, he was right but it was too late. And of course, that's speculation and we'll never know. So Doug Moore, in your memoirs, you outlined your thoughts on the cause of the collision. Can you summarise those for us? Well, um, I'm, I'm my position there as the second officer of the watch, but I, I had just been relieved as one of three second officers of the watches or midshipmen of the watches uh, at 8 o'clock, bit after 8, eight ten past 8. So I'd only just left the bridge, basically, by the time the incident happened. And the situation on the bridge uh, of Voyager, at that, even at that time, was a bit chaotic, chaotic because of the size of the bridge, the number of the people there, and we had a group of goofers of uh, people wanting to see other members of the ship's company wanting to see it all happen the, the flying on and off from Melbourne at night at the back of the bridge so and I was interested to, I, I had a lot of experience in the Navy after I left Voyager I basically spent a lot of my time in minesweepers I spent I spent two and a half years 
in England, where I was, we had some time in minesweepers and uh, doing my officers course, and then I went back to England on an exchange and had two years as the operations officer for the second MCM squadron, which was six minesweepers. Plus, I was responsible for the minesweepers for the reserves right throughout Britain for going out with them on the weekends. So I knew a bit about station keeping. When we, when the, this accident happened, and I believe, I believe in my heart that this is what happened. I wasn't there and nobody else was there. I believe that the captain gave the order to go to port to do a fishtail. Right? I believe that he, he knew where, he, he had worked it out, what had happened with the signals, and he gave an order to go to port to do a fishtail because he was, an, he was an impressive driver of ships. Apart from what has been said about him in other places, my experience with him in the very short time I was in the ship was that he wanted to drive that ship. And when he was doing that, in the, in the petty officer's mess deck where I was living, the comments were, oh, the captain's at it again, going flat out and going round. And that's, that, to me, means fishtail. Now, I also think that he would have, when the, the officer of the watch said, of Voyager said, come to starboard to go round, which the safe, is the safe, safe way to do it, and probably in retrospect was the way we should have gone. The captain said, bullshit, come to port. Port whatever it was. Now, the, uh, the rule, it's not a law. The rule of the, is if the captain gives an order, a wheel order, he then has the command of the ship. And it is not the officer of the watch's responsibility until the captain says to him, you have the ship. Now, I believe that our, my captain, Duncan Stevens, was the sort of bloke who was... He's, he was very brusque. And the officer of the watch was a fairly straight-up-and-down Englishman. And I believe that the officer of the watch stood down from the Polaris, where he had to be up on a little platform to, be, to look across the Polaris. He stood down from there, assuming the captain had the ship, and it... There's just what has been said now is the first time I have heard of where he went to the Port Polaris to look where Melbourne was. If he was still in command of the ship, he would have been on the Polaris in the centre of the, of the bridge because it's the only place you can look over, this, over the combing. Now, that tells me that what I thought is true. Now, to go back, I've heard what... Um, Commander Captain Robinson, whoever it was, talking about his father's part in the in this. I also know from my experience as a seaman officer, and with lots of little ships, sometimes at half standard distance, doing things we shouldn't have been doing. I can tell you that the officer in tactical command is responsible for the safety of the exercise. Now they were must be something said about that. I'm, I'm going to come back to Tom in a moment just to uh, make any final conclusions on this aspect. But before I do that, uh, Sylvia Emmett, your father, Sir Lawrence Street, of course, served in destroyers of World War II. He was a ship driver. Do you know if he came to any conclusions as to the uh, cause of the collision? I don't personally know, as I never had a dis that discussion with him. However, on my reading of the reports, um, as informed by uh, Tom Frame's uh, books, were that my father maintained throughout the First Royal Commission that the error in signals received by the, uh, Voyager was the ultimate cause of the collision. Um, at the First Royal Commission, he um, did not clearly, as I understand it, um, say that the mistake was uh, voyages. He left in the air whether or not the error had come from Melbourne 
to Voyager or the way in which Voyager had interpreted the signal or the way in which Voyager signalman had passed that on uh, to the bridge. However, given that the evidence was that there was no error in the signal sent by Melbourne, the error must have been at Voyager's end. And in those days, it was not the practice to repeat the sent signal and there was potentially confusing words that may precede a flying course signal or a turning course signal that may have added uh, to that confusion. But um, certainly uh, Voyager ultimately was mistaken as to its position relevant to Melbourne shortly before the, the collision and obviously too close to the collision to do more than the avoiding steps that have been referred to by others already this morning. So, Tom, any final thoughts before we move on to the, to the next stage of the question? Look, just three quick things. The first one was there was certainly some tension between David Hugh Massey-Price, who was the officer of the watch and a Brit, and Duncan Stevens, And that, now, some people even suggested was Price sulking. You know, the captain's made a bad decision, just going to let it get worse. I, I don't think that's the way that it developed, but certainly the relationship between the two wasn't one of openness where Price felt he could speak. Um, in relation to the fishtail, it was said then, and it's been said since, that it was an un it was always going to be an unwise manoeuvre and not one that Duncan Stevens had necessarily been known to conduct. John Robertson put the view that, oh, they must have thought they were on the port side, but the starboard side light was always visible. It was not not visible to them, I would make that point. I understand what Captain Robertson was saying at the time, but it has to overcome the difficulty of the starboard side light still being visible. And I said to tactical operator Gary Evans, who did receive the signal on board Voyager, I put to him that the possibility may have heard one thing and in the tension of the moment related in another way, and may he have been the voice in the water, and he said that may have been possible. Now, he wasn't saying, yes, it was, and I did make a mistake, and it was a contributing factor. Now, there were a whole range of things that should have prevented the action from developing and a collision then being inevitable. But Evan certainly said that what I put to him at least, that he may have heard one thing, relayed another, and then called out in the water to have been heard by his shipmate, um, Patterson, makes it possible that there was some mistake on Voyager's Bridge. But again, as we've said, we don't know. Um, those who could speak definitively about what they thought and what they did are not here to give an account of themselves. So we need to be, I think, least respectful of that to them. Well, turning from the cause of the collision uh, to the collision itself, Doug Moore, what are your personal recollections of the collision? And noting, of course, you received the George Medal for Bravery for saving lives that evening. What, what was your uh, involvement recollection of the collision? Well, I, as I'd said, I'd been on, I was up on the bridge, the watch before the, the actual collision, and I'd only been down about 20 minutes. And I'd, it was a hot night. I'd taken off my shirt. I had a pair, pair of shorts on and a pair of sandals. And uh, I'd walked down into the, the mess deck, our mess deck, the Pedios' mess deck, which was down at water level uh, in the forage section. And um, uh, I, I've, I've never been a beer drinker at sea. I don't drink, I, don't, I never did. I, I get squirmish if I drink beer at sea. And uh, I had given away my beer issue to somebody and I had a can of lemonade, which I'd picked up at the canteen on the way down in my hand. And I was standing at the, bridge, at the ladder when we heard, and talking to other POs and um, uh, little conversations like, when the hell is this going to bloody stop? We're going backwards and forwards. We, the captain's at it again, going quick. And... Um, then suddenly there was a pipe. Now, the recollection of the actual words of the pipe don't matter. It was standby for collision stations by a shouted voice and everybody just grabbed whatever they could, like I grabbed the handrail of the, of the ladder, I suppose, and bang, that was the next thing we, that happened. It was, I'd, been, I'd been in a couple of motor cars that had rolled over. It's exactly the same noise, the, the crunch of the metal, the smash of the glass, the, uh, the uh, uh, disorientation, and we went over about, I would think, about 30, 40, maybe 50 degrees over as an initial for a, cup, for a couple of seconds, maybe a couple of seconds, and then we flopped on our, on our starboard side. So our port side then became our deck, our deckhead. Um, what, um, 
what happened then was uh, the thankfully, and I have said this a thousand times since. Thank God for the electricians because all the emergency lighting came on and the emergency lighting enabled us to see where we have and what was happening. And in the petty officer's mess, which didn't quite run the whole width of the ship, but with most of the width of the ship, was, a, was just a shamble of um, broken chairs, broken, uh, the fridge had broken free from its moorings. Everything was down on the starboard side of our mess and there was a pile of people, there was us, and there were some in the sleeping accommodation who had come out, and uh, we then said, well, you know, oh, by then it was dead silence. Dead silence with a little trickle of water in the, in the trunkings. Obviously, the water was flowing in through the ventilation trunkings, but only a trickle, trickle, nothing else. Then we decided, well... The, the escape hatch we needed to get out was in the port side and it was 40, 50 feet above, 40 feet above our heads and no ladder or anything to get up to it. So we decided, we're all petty officers, we're all people that have been in the Navy for quite a while and we made a pyramid of people and got up to the hatch. Now the baker got up at the hatch, found out that although we, we had the... We had the uh, wing nuts on the, on the escape hatch. Couldn't get them undone. So there was a bit of a, a, bit of a conversation and somebody, I've always believed it was me, passed up a broom handle and said, try that. And they got it into the, into the combing, into the, uh, the, um, the brass fitting and slowly they got it to open. So then we opened our hatch and air was blowing out and we started to get everybody for out from the mess, from that area there. And everybody we had in that mess, we got out. And we got them out by taking the people up the, up the train of men and then we started to pull them up one and after, one after, and we got them onto the side of the ship. Now, a lot of them were going straight over the side. And I said... Don't go over the side. The thing's floating. Just stand on it until we work out what's happening. But, of course, that wasn't taken a lot of notice of, and most of them were going straight over the side. I, I helped get, out, get them out. Then I walked forward. I walked aft, actually, first, and I must have only gone 10 or 15 feet, and there was nothing, just jagged metal. And I thought, oh... The back of the, the stern of the ship must be hanging down below us. I had no vision that we were cut in half. And I thought, oh, God, what am I going to do? So I, I never, and then I thought, well, I'll just go forward and see what's happening up there. I walked forward on the side of the ship and the, where they had the escape hatches open, and there were only a couple, you could see light coming out of them. And by the time I got up to the two light hatches there, there was no one coming out of them, no one. And I poked my head into the two, two hatches there and lo and behold, I heard nothing. But I could see that it was almost impossible for anybody to get out from those messes because they couldn't reach the escape hatch. And how they got them open, I don't know. I then walked aft and there was a couple of still hanging around our hatch I personally poked myself down into the hatch to check that we had everybody out because we had no idea how, whether we did or we didn't. And then I, poked, I, I yelled out, did all the things that I could. I got back out the hatch, stood on the side, and suddenly the ship rolled. And we were, whether we wanted to be in the water or not, we were going to be in the water. And the first indication I had when I got there was the, the debris, the oil, and... Lots of people uh, talking, yakking, screaming, doing what they do. And I came across, I started to swim away from the ship and i only gone a little that way and I came across three people hanging onto a, a, a canvas, a canvas lump. And I said, what are you doing? And they said, we don't know, we, we don't know what it is. I said, it's a bloody life raft. And I opened, I, I had... Previously, when I was on Melbourne, done the long life raft course. 
and I said, we get it open. So I showed them how to, to inflate it, and as luck would have it, we inflated it, and it was upside down. But anyhow, we got it over onto its front, and everybody tried to pile into it. There were people trying to pile into it. Now, I've been credited with pulling some bloke who couldn't swim out of the water to the life raft. I did that to two or three, obviously, but because I was gathering everybody. And then I realised here we had a 20-man life raft and we had a lot more than what we can handle. So my first problem was the, the seamen normally have their their belts on with their knives and everything. And I said, everybody is to take everything sharp off before they get on or in this raft. Because if we puncture it, we're going to be in trouble. Because at this stage, it was, you know, five minutes or so after the end, 10 minutes, everything was happening pretty quick. Anyhow, I then said, well, we had some that were seriously hurt. One bloke had been on the toilet just after us and had been cut badly by the broken toilet and people like that. I didn't want bleeding people in the water. So I said, right, only the, those that are badly injured are to go into the raft. Everybody else is to hang on to the side of it. Because I could see we had about 40 people and, and it was just not, we couldn't all get in. And I did not want to have it punctured in any way, shape or form. So... Uh, the sick birth attendant, who I he vowed wanted to hang on the outside, but I made him go inside, and it's very stifling inside a life raft at sea. It's stifling. But anyhow, I, I praise him because he did a marvellous job. Anyhow, we hung on, and we tried to work out what had happened because we didn't have a clue. Uh, they said, what did I think happened? I said, well, we were working with the submarine before dark. I suppose we've hit the submarine or something, or the, a merchant ship, because we could see a little light over on the horizon. Little did we know it was Melbourne. But we didn't know it was Melbourne. Um, we just didn't, couldn't work out what had happened. So anyhow, not, not to worry, we're in an area of good shipping, we'll be picked up. Yeah, well, we hung on there for three hours before anybody came. But uh, we did have a helicopter come over and... The downdraft of the helicopter was once again a problem to me because I thought it's going to flip over the life raft and then we're going to have people swimming around who have been in the water a long time and some of those couldn't swim. So the next thing that happened, after three hours, along came an, a, a CO rescue boat driven by a friend of mine and we got on board there. They took us on board and... His first words to me as I come up the ladder was, what in the bloody hell are you doing here, Pony? And he, but I said, I'm just having a swim. <laughs> but anyhow, that was how it all happened. Well, Peter Jones, can you briefly describe the search and rescue operation? Yeah, so um, just uh, filling in from uh, where Doug left off. So, so Melbourne launched her boats almost immediately after the collusion to start to recover survivors. On board the carrier, they converted the wardroom and a hangar um, to areas to prepare for uh, receiving casualties. Um, one of Melbourne's boats was able to rescue uh, 40 people before it, it was beginning to take water because there were so many um, uh, to get on board the, the, uh, the cutter. Um, eight helicopters were also launched um, from, uh, from shore. Um, but uh, they were deemed uh, as too dangerous to have so many uh, helicopters in such a, a small area. So they reduced it to just having two at a time. Um, and, uh, and then it was uh, decided that the best use of the helicopters was in fact to, to illuminate the sea for, uh, to identify where the survivors were, as Doug indicated, and, uh, and then use... Um, uh, small vessels to then pick up survivors. So five minesweepers were um, dispatched from um, Sydney. They would obviously take a bit of time. The, the nearest vessels were the uh, two search and rescue boats from, uh, from Jarvis Bay, the Air Nymph and the Air, the Air Sprite. They were dispatched. Um, and also from Sydney, the, um, the destroyer escort Stewart was also being prepared to sail. So by 2200, Air Nymph had uh, collected 34 survivors, while another 36 were 
recovered by Air Sprite and transported to Jarvis Bay. Um, sea searches continued until the 12th of Feb, um, and aircraft made occasional passes over the area until the 14th of February um, in that case, so really looking for any bodies. So from the 314 um, officers and sailors on board Voyager at the time of collusion, 14 officers and 67 sailors and, and one civilian dockyard worker were killed, including Captain Stevens um, and all but two sailors of the bridge crew. Um, majority of, of those killed had been in the forward section of the Voyager, as um, Tom indicated, um, and, uh, and only three bodies were recovered, uh, one of them being that of Stevens, and they were buried on the 14th of February, and the missing were de declared dead on the 17th of February. A final question for this episode to you, Tom. As we noted in the introduction, this was the Australian Navy's greatest peacetime disaster. Briefly, what was the reaction of the, uh, of the Australian public and the media? Well, if we divide them apart, if we can say that the politicians might speak on behalf of the public, certainly the politicians were shocked, stunned that this would happen. Two ships in open waters, a collisions happened. And the Navy thought it could handle it internally. There'd been a series of mishaps over the previous eight years. The Prime Minister decided that there would be a Royal Commission. It was called immediately, and we'll cover that in a later conversation. So there was just incredulity. How could this have happened? How could this have happened with such great loss of life? In terms of the media, the media then obviously saw the drama in all of this. Is there a problem in the Navy? Is there a crisis of confidence in its commanders? I and mean, what is going on? There'd been a number of unrelated incidents in this previous eight years, and people thought, look, is the Navy safe? And indeed, some of the editorials in newspapers asked that question. Now, that was an alarmist response to what had happened because none of the previous episodes were related in any way to Voyager. But the Navy's had another mishap, and on this occasion, it was with terrible loss of life. There were national memorials across the country. The Navy did the best that it could, I think, to deal with the fallout. But this was much, much bigger than the Navy. This is a human tragedy of enormous proportions. And uh, flags at half-mast, uh, memorial services, and for the families who didn't have a body to bury, uh, that was a very difficult thing for them. There are only three bodies, so there are a large number of people whose home always is the sea, and that's why on a couple of important occasions the Navy's taken survivors and family members back to the point of the collision because it's the nearest physical sense, if you like, they have to those whose uh, resting place will forever be the sea. So, Doug Moore, the trauma of the collision was life-changing for the survivors. Could you comment on this? Yeah, well, sure, it, it's, it's been life... It's been unbelievably traumatic for the, for a lot of the survivors. Um, I'll give you a couple of very quick ones. We went when we came back from our uh, three weeks or whatever they gave us ten days. I think it was survivors' leave. They posted quite a lot of us to um, uh, the ship Quiberon, which was um, operating out of Garden Island and on day running and was due to be uh, scrapped. It was due to be uh, taken out of service and it was in really poor state. And I think there, were, there was myself and there was about, oh, there must have been 20 ratings uh, who were posted there. I don't know the number. Anyhow, one night we were doing night, uh, day running going out of Sydney with the submarines doing uh, submarine training. And... Um, we, uh, we were out there one night, uh, out off Sydney Heads, and uh, I actually happened to be second officer of the watch at the time, and uh, we, hit, we hit something which we thought was a whale. The officer of the watch, who was very experienced, said to me, I think we've hit a whale. Anyhow, the, the whole ship shuttered and uh, carried on and nothing happened, and uh, anyhow, within a minute or so, uh, somebody came running up to the bridge and said... Uh, Pony, you're wanted down on the quarterdeck. And I said, what for? And they said, I, you've got to come down and talk to the Voyager boys. So I go go down to the, uh, the um, quarterdeck, and here they all were, standing on the quarterdeck, the whole lot of them, uh, in their, in their pyjamas and whatever they were in. And uh, I said, oh, I think it was only a whale. Everything's fine. There's not a problem. Um, you know, I, saying it was a whale, I didn't have a clue. I just, we were assuming that. 
But anyhow, after a while, uh, some of them would go down below, but a lot of them wouldn't sleep below. They just wouldn't weren't interested in going down below. Now, that's one. Another one, I was on a ship called... My next ship was the Gascoigne, because I had to complete my training to go to UK. So to go to the Gascoigne, the best two years of my life. And um, we, um, we were up in... Uh, in uh, I think it was Townsville and we were drinking in a bar and a young fellow sidled up to me and said um, you're Tony Moore aren't you and I said yes I am and he said uh, my name's so whatever it was and uh, I said oh yeah you know a blank stare I had I didn't know the bloke at all it was only a young bloke and he said I was on the Voyager and I was in your life raft and I said oh oh because I, I'm bad with names, and I didn't I didn't remember him or anybody else who was in the life raft with me. And uh, I said, well, how are you going? He said, oh, terrible, you've got no idea. And th- this was a year or so after the event. And he said, he said I, they offered us whether we could get out of the Navy or stay in the Navy. And he said, and I immediately took for leaving the Navy. And he said, the worst thing i ever done in my life. I just haven't been able to settle. I can't keep a job. Uh, and I felt so bad. Oh, what could we do? And uh, I gave him what I thought were words of advice, and I'm not even sure what they were. But um, he went away, and I felt so sorry, so sorry for that bloke. And you're not going to credit it. I've even got a real tight gut now having talked about it for about an hour. I've got a tight gut. So these things do affect you. I've got a real tight feeling in my stomach. Um, Now, the way we were treated was as they would have treated you in wartime. Uh, We were were taken to Penguin uh, in Balmoral in uh, Sydney. We were given a cursory medical check, and I mean cursory. Um, We had a set of overalls which they had taken out of stores because none of us had any clothes or anything. We were given a small sum of money. I don't know what it was. Um, but um, basically, and I didn't even have any shoes on. No, most of us didn't have any shoes. Um, and we were basically told to um, make our way uh, to our homes. Um, and uh, as a result of that, I was lucky. I rang up the diving section and somebody sent a car up to me and away I went went home. But the, uh, the rest of them, I, uh, looking back on it, uh, was terrible. Um, they, um, they sent some by train down to Melbourne or other ports. And, of course, there was a fair bit of time between when they let us go and when the train went. So there was a fair bit of alcohol consumed. And that created a terrible mess on the train, which has been reported by different people. Um, these kids, these were only kids, most of them. They were 18 years of age uh, in the Navy, no more than four months, maybe six months. And um, this was the most traumatic thing that could have ever happened to them. And um, even to us hardened ones, uh, it was quite traumatic. Um, I think uh, I don't don't get into organisations. I don't like being in organisations and... um, uh, everybody has their own way of dealing with the trauma. My way was to put an oar on my shoulder, walk north and uh, wait for somebody to ask me what it was and then buy a farm. And I eventually did that, but I, I took another 10 years to do it. Doug, thanks very much for that. That was, that was really, uh, that's quite, quite uh, moving and powerful. Thank you very much. And that really is our transition point into the next episode. So we're now going to end this episode uh, of the uh, Melbourne Voyager tragedy. And in the next episode, our panel of experts will discuss the remarkable story of the legal aspects that followed the collision. My thanks to Judge Sylvia Emmett, Brian Robertson, Tom Frame, Doug Moore, and Peter Jones. And thank you for joining us. And for, for more information on the Australian Naval History Podcast series, simply search for Naval Studies Group in your search engine. Goodbye for now.